Jennifer's writing has been described as the love child of Anna East Nen and David Sedaris might have penned these tales. So, Jennifer, um, what I've read of your stuff is really intelligent and very funny. Can you speak to writing humor? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, you know, I don't think I'm a funny person, though. I think <laughs> it just comes out in my writing, and I don't know if... Uh, if that's because I have to sit down and write it 20 times in order to get it right is something funny. or But I always know the writing is going well if I'm my husband can hear me just cracking myself up in my in my writing studio. and So you so laugh at your own jokes. I laugh at my own <laughs> jokes, and I know if I'm laughing at my own jokes that it's working. Mm-hmm. So, But in, in my real life, uh, I don't think I'm a funny, funny person at all. So, <laughs> Isn't it interesting, though, that our writing voice is different yes. from our, mm-hmm. our normal voice? You're listening to Jack Straw resident writer Jennifer Munro in discussion with curator Judith Roche. Yeah, I know that you've written a lot about relationship and love and disappointment and erotica. How is that writing different from other writing? Erotica, I'm thinking. Um, or is it not? That's one of the most interesting things to me is that I have managed to accrue these credits as an erotica writer, and I would I would never define my writing as erotica or think of myself as an erotica writer, but I was writing these fictional stories that often touched on things that were happening in my real life, and I was also writing essays about miscarriage, and for me, uh, there's a huge intersection between sex and consequences like pregnancy, infertility, miscarriage, Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> not only for you, dear. <laughs> yeah, and um, but a lot of literature sort of um, s- separates them. Their sex sort of takes place in its own arena, and then there's another arena where women tend to be experiencing these very um, heartbreaking, challenging um, events in their life. And for me, they're very much interrelated, and I couldn't separate them. So even my erotica often touch- touches very much on pregnancy issues, infertility mm-hmm. issues, miscarriage issues, and and then my essays about miscarriage often talk about sex. So one of my essays is about the night that uh, my husband and I were, I had been taking five kinds of hormones in an attempt to have a, conceive a healthy pregnancy and told we had to go home and have sex that night. <laughs> and it, it I wrote about it as, you know, it was a horrible, painful experience. You know, yeah. you think, oh, everyone thought that's just great. You get to have sex all the time. But uh, and that that came out as a funny essay. But um, t- to me, they're they're one and the same. So but some come yeah. out come out as essays and some come out as fiction. That so. strikes me as a wonderfully holistic way to think about <laughs> it. Really. Now you'll hear excerpts from Jennifer's live reading at Jack Straw Productions. Good, they're laughing already. (laughs) You can clap for me all you want. (laughs) I'm not proud. I will be reading excerpts tonight from my memoir, which, as Judith mentioned, is called Not Suitable for Children, Marriage, Miscarriage, and Motorcycling. So tonight you'll maybe get to figure out how those three things can possibly go together. So I'm reading some vignettes. They're from a chapter entitled Shock. It's about a 10,000-mile motorcycle trip that my husband and I took midway through my having seven miscarriages. A few terms. When I use the word bike, I'm talking about a motorcycle, not a three-speed twin. (laughs) Same for iron horse, hog, crotch rocket. It's not locomotives, bacon, and vibrators, although you'd think with my (laughs) 
Resume. It's all motorcycles. Men have a lot more words for their equipment than women do. Okay. Change of pace. By the third day of our two-month motorcycle trip, my laid-back derriere threw in the towel. Ride, free, or die, went the American biker saying. Frankly, death sounded preferable to one more centimeter traveled on the back of my husband's iron horse. Less than 500 miles into our cross-country ride, and I couldn't tolerate half an hour on the hog without stopping for a stretch. After four miscarriages, I thought I knew pain. More suffering didn't rank high on my wish list. This was a vacation, for crying out loud, where the most an American with a charge card should endure was sunburn or a tummy ache from overeating. But an evil Lilliputian lurked under my seat, jamming an ice pick up my tailbone every time the tires hit a pebble. My bladder felt like it had been shaken in a martini mixer with splinters and thumbtacks. The psycho soundtrack played in my head. My posterior was the size of a garbage can lid, but my perch was no bigger than a bar of soap. <laughs> One would think that the excess padding of my rump would make seat cushioning unnecessary, but I was a clanging sack of jarred bones, staple gunned in the hips and spine at every road seam. The chronic need for brakes didn't go over well with my pilot, who barely got into the easy rider groove before his passenger banged on his legs, demanding yet another pit stop. My husband Richard and I would never make it out of Big Sky Country by Christmas, much less travel from the west to the east coast and back that summer. We'd make better time on a mule. <laughs> Divorce or murder was about to happen on the narrow shoulder of a two-lane Montana road, where he pulled over when I jabbed his thighs. Richard had passed the last small-town gas station and its potential restroom without stopping, an unforgivable sin. The motorcycle leaned on its kickstand in the dirt, our mother ship sinking under the weight of our anger. The wind from passing cars whipped us, and our tongues lashed each other. I pulled out the map to locate the nearest airport so that I could fly home. <laughs> in the heat of the argument, Richard let it slip that he had completely tightened the shock absorbers under my seat. The plastic saddlebags would rub on the exhaust pipes if the shocks were loosened. He had hoped I wouldn't notice. My body sucked up every jolt that the coiled springs didn't. While my bike seat was the size and consistency of a brick, my tough biker boy, the rebel with the cul-de-sac cause, nestled his gazelle haunches on the lazy boy saddle in front of me. <laughs> of course he could tolerate the lack of shocks. What he could not tolerate was me. Unlike my seat, he became a sponge soaking up my misery. When I discovered that, in deference to the saddlebags, I had suffered every bump for three states between here and my mattress, I cursed and spit like I'd rebirthed my inner biker bitch. A popular biker term I'd never been fond of, but now fully embraced. My gluteus maximus became a ventriloquist, every nerve ending through its screams up to my vocal cords. Folks in passing cars gaped at us, slowing down to witness the wreckage of our marriage. The best entertainment to pass this way in years. Cornstalks bound out around us under the gale force of our shouts. Finally, Richard gave in. It wasn't that I was right, or that he cared any less about road rash tearing the saddlebags open and our underwear scattering across the Great Divide. He simply couldn't stomach the rubbernecking. 
He pulled a wrench from under his seat and loosened the shocks. I crossed my arms. He loosened them all the way. I patted his head and we took off. The saddlebag suffered road burn in minutes, black streaks that turned to gaping holes after 25 states, but the biker bitch went into retirement. The corn breathed a sigh of relief and righted itself in the still air. The bike magnified our different temperaments. When we quarreled, the wind blew his anger away, while mine built up inside my full-faced helmet, like bread dough in a small jar on a hot porch. <laughs> the pressure erupted whenever we next stopped, and I flipped back my face shield, as ready to duel as any knight in armor. But as we puttered along, Richard reached back and rubbed my knee, and my temper deflated. I tensed up when he drove one-handed like this, but this time I let his hand linger without protest. I squeezed my thighs against his hips, like the Suzanne Summers exercise contraption. <laughs> With his butt wedged back against my crotch, my thighs could be scissors, cutting an angry swath through the piece of our journey, or they could clinch a good day with an affectionate leg hug. Shorter than him and tucked behind him, I couldn't see what lay ahead of us on the road. I lived in the moment, not looking ahead or behind. I existed only in the peripheral landscape and my own head, no radio, no conversation. I made out a hill off to the right. Suddenly, along the high crest, a herd of horses stampeded across the vast blue sky. They flew across endless space, wind-streaked manes tickling the clouds. I tapped Richard's shoulder and pointed. Richard's helmet bobbed as he nodded to me that he spotted the tableau that materialized just for us. These were the mythic moments of our journey, the reward of unscheduled time. If we hadn't stopped to squabble, we would have missed this magic image that would hang over the mantle of our memory forever. Like dominoes, each revelation bestowed by the open road depended on the preceding fork and the choices we made. If I had pushed the bike into the path of an oncoming freight train, we never would have witnessed the rush of horses across heaven. We weren't spiritual people, but as we journeyed down country highways and back roads, we breathed in divinity. Most importantly, we touched the sacred together. The wingless flight of enchanted creatures bound us together more surely than our marriage vows. The galloping horses vanished as quickly as they appeared, an apparition of wild mustangs. Richard's hand rested on my knee, and I squeezed. How did I end up sitting on a jackhammer instead of at home on the couch? You're out of your mind, I said when Richard first asked me to join him on his cross-country motorcycle pilgrimage, a low-budget affair. He invited me only to be polite. We both knew I wouldn't go. Camping on hard ground, unpredictable bathroom situations, and a suitcase the size of a paperback book all added up to an unappealing picture as far as dream vacations went. Liken me to the princess and the pea, but I applaud the invention of the pillow. I'm hardly a fashion maven, but I appreciate a dresser drawer full of clean underwear. Frankly, two months with the house to myself sounded like nirvana. I'd let him sow his wild oats while I gleefully piled books on his side of the bed. During initial plans for the journey, we bartered about how far along I'd be willing to go in a pregnancy while my mate rode off into a distant sunset, squeezing in a last hurrah before fatherhood. Despite three miscarriages already, we remained optimistic since doctors could find nothing wrong with us. Half a dozen eager buddies were to ride with him, but one by one, his travel companions dropped out. A few were suddenly, without forethought, becoming parents. Everyone involved had second thoughts, even me. I said, what the hell? Nothing turns out the way we think it will. After yet another miscarriage, hitting the road and the bottle didn't sound half bad. Motherhood seemed as unattainable as reaching Australia by bike. 
I had no plans of my own now, so I adopted his. I threw out the prenatal vitamins and invested in tequila and a hip, hip flask. Three sheets to the wind, off I went. But I felt like a failure riding behind Richard. No follow through, same as my pregnancies. I was supposed to ride my own bike. I didn't think women should be relegated to the back of a man's. But the ink had barely dried on my hard-earned motorcycle license, and I felt too inexperienced for such a grand undertaking. Motorcycling is one of those tricky catch-22s. To become a good rider, you need a lot of experience under your belt. To get more experience, you have to not die. <laughs> I knew that if I rode my own bike on this trip, they'd be shipping me home in a body bag. A tree had jumped in my way on my last solo outing, and I was lucky to dodge it by bouncing across a field rather than into a car coming in the opposite direction. The bike I'd purchased just for this trip was my third in less than a year. I kept buying motorcycles in the hopes that they were the problem, not me. <laughs> the bikes were all fine, but I had no aptitude for riding. Motorcycling took a hefty dose of testosterone, and I couldn't even get my uterus to work, much less sprout a spare set of cojones. <laughs> so I chickened out. We tucked my bike into the shed, and I tucked myself behind Richard. I second-guessed my cowardice for miles. But South Dakota, of all places, convinced me I'd made the right choice. You'd think a biker would have nothing to fear crossing the Great Plains except falling asleep from boredom, with flat roads stretching for miles and nothing to do but guess the names of crops. But the prairie winds shoved us sideways, tipping our bike like a healing boat with a tight stretched sail. With each gust, Richard wrenched the bike upright before we wiped our noses on an asphalt hanky. On my little bike, I would have been blown straight up to Canada, where I'd find myself picking soybeans out of my teeth if I still had teeth. But the fact of the matter is, though, that I enjoyed being a passenger on Richard's bike, no matter our differences. Once I stopped thinking I had to prove myself or take a stance for all womankind with my own crotch rocket. This journey was not about independence. This was about unity, reconnecting in the most literal sense of the word. Between the extremes of giddy excitement and bleak disappointment, emergency rooms and an empty looming future, we'd lost our glue. We'd forgotten how to be together in the moment. Now we were as tightly joined as the love bugs we splattered with our bodies. Hundreds of them met their deaths while mating in midair, painting our body, painting our shirts in bloody Rorschach patterns that never washed out. Think of your windshield on a buggy stretch. That was Richard's face. <laughs> Richard and I would meet a similar intertwined finale if fate turned up our crash card, not an uncommon fortune in the motorcycle deck. A well-known biker expression is, there are two kinds of bikers, those who have been in an accident and those who will be. 80% of motorcycle accidents end in serious injury or death to the rider, which makes it odd that I, a woman with four fire extinguishers, two safety ladders, 11 flashlights, and a closet full of emergency food and water, was most relaxed on the back of a dangerous machine. But riding pillion behind Richard, I could give up control in a life in which I controlled everything except my weight and my uterus. I could daydream for hours, except on freeways and bridges. I didn't like freeways, and I didn't like bridges. We'd backtrack to a dreaded freeway to find a bridge that crossed the Mississippi River near Baton Rouge as we circled back towards home. Motorcycle tires catch in the metal grooves of bridge grillwork and the bridge itself tries to twist the handlebars out of a rider's grip. So I clung tight to Richard as we sped from pavement onto the steel mesh of a massive bridge with three lanes in each direction. The trust steel loomed above us, and Old Man River yawned 175 feet below. 
We sat up higher than the railings, nothing to stop our fall if we went airborne. Traffic in the opposite direction clogged behind an 18-wheeler stopped midway across the bridge. We slowed to a crawl behind rubbernecking traffic as we passed the recent crash. The semi-truck driver crouched in front of his semi, yelling that it was okay, that help was coming, but his high-pitched voice cracked as he repeated his words over and over. Half under his front grille, a mangled motorcycle. Trapped under his massive tires, the rider, screaming, an inhuman screaming that soon silenced. I sobbed, my tears and snuffling trapped in my full-faced helmet. After the traffic unsnarled us, Richard took the first exit and pulled over into a dusty, deserted parking lot. We climbed off the bike and hugged for a long time, pressed together, helmets on, our heads enclosed in separate protective bubbles. Despite the assurances of the truck driver and our doctors, everything was not okay. I cried for so much more than the squelched horizon of that biker whose future had, until a moment ago, looked just like ours. Without a word, we climbed back on the bike and took off into the sunset. We took no joy in the road that day. We never mentioned this incident again, just as we never mentioned the flying horses or the miscarriages. Richard and I just rode free, wedged together in silence. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2008 curator of this program is Judith Roche. Music performed by Grand Hallway and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artists Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Amy Broomhall. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.